Would y'all stand with me as we read from God's word? 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 5, it says this. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and in him there is absolutely no darkness. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not here and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing to you these things so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. That's such good news. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we thank you uh, for the good news that we see in your word. I pray that you would help us uh, not to be those that are defensive uh, and we push away this food for our souls. Help us to come to your word hungry, Father, so that we can leave satisfied. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can take your seat. Mo, can you hand me that water? Thank you. Every claim shouldn't Claims are meant to be verified. Claims can be verified. Claims must be verified. Um, It was June 2015, and one such claim was tested, and African-American studies professor at East Washington University, who was the president of the NAACP, a civil rights activist who was allegedly the victim of nine hate crimes. Y'all are laughing because you know where I'm going with this. Um... Her parents came out and said, I'm actually, she's not African-American. We are European-American. Rachel Dozo was white. And it threw everybody for a loop, right? Because they looked at her and, you know, she claimed to be black. She said she was black. She had that little, like, 3A curl pattern, so she kind (laughs) of, she kind of looked like she's just, like, light-skinned with, with light eyes, and it threw everybody for a loop because they said, what? She said she was black, but she wasn't. Um, And then this was where uh, black Twitter solidified itself, right? You see all these things. Folks are like, well, we should have known. We should have put her through tests, right? Things like uh, Mary J. Blige didn't want hateration or holleration where? In her (laughs) dancery, right? Your kids come from playing outdoors with friends. What do they smell like? Outside, right? Uh, 
what flavor is the Kool-Aid with a crimson hue? Red. And folks would say, well, red's not a color. I'd like to introduce you to my friend Orange, right? Red, Red is, in fact, a flavor and a color. Basically, what folks said was this. They said, she made a claim, and we let her skate on the claim. We didn't verify and test it. Every claim shouldn't be believed. Claims can be verified. Claims must be verified. Here's one of the claims that I think often we let folks skate on, or self-included. Christian. What does it mean to be a Christian? Is that a claim that once somebody makes, once you make, you make a decision that you're good with it and there's no way that anybody can undo it. Here's what I know. If the Bible is really true, then at the end of time, there are going to be two types of people in this world. Those that will spend an eternity with God and those that won't. Even though there are two types of people in the world, those that will end up in heaven and those that will end up in hell, um, I think there's four types of people in this room. There are those that are saved and they absolutely know it. There's those that I absolutely know I'm good with God. At the end of time, I'm clear about where I will be. And then there are folks that are not saved and they know it, right? I know that I'm not good with God. I'm certain that I'm not going to be with him at the end of time. There are people that are certain about their outcome, but then there are people um, that are unsure about where they are. There are those that are saved and they don't know it. Here's what I mean by that. I don't mean that you can just stumble on salvation. I mean that there are certain folks that are saved. They have genuinely put their trust in the Lord. Uh, but due to things that have gone on in life, they may feel depressed or they may doubt, right? Think of the mom that just had her first kid and she went all of this time as a Christian and she never missed a quiet time in God's word and now she has a kid and she's tired and she doesn't want to get into God's word anymore. Somebody that experienced a tragedy and a loss and they feel this big love that they have for God, it's hard for them to engage in the same way. Think of Peter after the betrayal. There are those that are genuinely saved, but they're unsure, they doubt. Then there's the fourth type that I think is the saddest of all four. Um, There are those that are not saved and they do not know it. They are not on good terms with God. They are living a life where at the end of days, They won't spend an eternity with him, but they're deceived and they think that they're good. Matthew 7, right, on that last day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we heal the sick in your name? Didn't we cast out many demons in your name? And Jesus will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Do you know what that means? Uh, That means that there will be people that are more impressive than you that find their way into hell. And that's enough to make us step back and to say, well, well, how do I know this Christianity thing really took? How do I know if it's stuck? What reassurance do I have? 
And here's what makes it difficult. What's hard to really know at times is because everybody still sins. It would be one thing if once you put your trust in, in the Lord, like you just didn't sin anymore. Then it would be very, very clear who's converted and who's not. But the thing is that we all still sin. We all still mess up. We all find ourselves doing much of the same things that we did prior to any conversion that we had. Historically, folks have dealt with this, I think, in at least two ways. One is universalism. And they say God is a God of love. Right? Love wins. They'll say things like, uh, if God is really a God of love, then I can't imagine him ever sending anybody to hell. That's the more um, explicit way. A subtle way that folks may embrace this and not know it is that they always find themselves conveniently skipping over mentions of God's wrath and God's law and only talk about his love and lead folks to believe that God is just a God of love. Maybe that's not you. Maybe uh, you're not a universalist. Maybe you're a moralist. And you do know that God does judge sin. uh, But moralism says God grades on a curve. And this may be you if you've ever said anything like, I know I sin, but at least I ain't never dot, dot, dot. I think both of those are insufficient when it comes to identifying what a Christian is because it never really deals with the problem of sin. It says two things about God that the Bible says um, is, uh, are, are false. That God is a God of love, but because God loves goodness, God hates sin. God is a God of law, yes, But if he grades on a curve, it doesn't make sense how people like David, who was an adulterer and a murderer, gets in. So the question is, when we make the claim of Christian, when somebody makes the claim of Christian, what is Christianity all about? And I think that's what we get here in 1 John. 1 John 5, 13, John gives the theme of the whole book, and what he says is this. I write this to you a church who believes in the name of the Son of God so that you might know that you have eternal life. John is writing to a group of folks that would spend their time on a Sunday gathering to hear what God says. John says, I'm writing this letter so that y'all that are out there would really know. John doesn't want anybody to be surprised by the verdict at the end. If you have a big ego, you're going to hate the Apostle John because he doesn't mince his words. Because if he has to choose in between certainty and your comfort, he's going to choose certainty. And the question that I want to ask you is this. When it comes to the state of your soul, can anybody be too severe, too harsh, Uh, Mike and I were on the road a few months ago and he shared with me about a friend that he had um, that had a a cough for the past three years and uh, didn't know where it came from and he went to the doctor 
and he basically found out that he had a tumor the size of his fist in his lung. And because the doctor told him the truth about where he was, the doctor could operate painfully so, but he healed him and it fixed him. Who wants a doctor that's going to make you feel good now and leave a tumor in your lung? So what John's saying is this, yo, 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 who wants to be in a place where people are going to make you feel good but leave you feeling deceived? Claims can be verified. They must be verified. And the claim of a Christian, it's important that you and I have an objective standard to understand what it is. That's what John does here. So I'm going to start here and I'm going to read um, starting in verse 5 and I just want to walk us through this text that is all about what Christianity is about. Starting in verse 5 it says this, this is the message that we heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. I just want to stop right here. As John is preparing to tell these people, explain what it means to be a Christian, when he starts with God, do you know what he doesn't start with? God's love. Do you know why? Because the Bible starts out with a loving God, the first thing that we see, a God that loves, do you know the first action that you see him do after he creates? He looks and sees a earth full of darkness, and he says, let there be light, and there was light. Your Bible helps you see that we serve a holy God who comes into the earth and dispels darkness. So John goes on and says, yo, yo. God is light, and not just is God light, but he's so light that there's no darkness in him. So he talks about God in terms of this unapproachable, blinding lightness. And do you know the thing that should come into your minds as you hear this? Who could claim to have fellowship with a God that is this holy if we ourselves have darkness on the inside? John begins and says this, this is what we have heard from him and declare to you. Christianity is not a religion of innovation, the newest and the latest. John is just saying, I'm repeating the same stuff that Jesus was repeating and it was the same stuff that God said and what you and I know is that if we serve God and God knows all and God can't lie and God does not change, then all of his words are like the non-perishable can of beans that are sitting in the back of your pantry. They aren't going to expire. They don't go bad. Speaking of God's unapproachable light, then what John says this, look here how verse 6, verse 8, and verse 10, they all start off with these three words. If we say, if we say, if we say. John's spending his time talking about a claim of fellowship with God, what you and I would know as Christianity, 
And what he's going to do is he's going to put this thing through a test. So at the baseline, you and I know what Christianity is all about. And I think that his main point is this. Yo, Christianity is not about perfection. Christianity is about the direction that you head in. Christianity is not about a one-time decision that you make. Christianity is about the direction that you walk in. The claim isn't the most important thing. The claim is the easiest thing to make. Anybody can make claims. But you have insurance adjusters that come out to the site because they know it's easy for people to make claims. It's harder for them to justify why they need $1,000 for some ripped up carpet. So what John does is he draws our attention. To this one six. If we say, look, we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Verse six and seven. The language that he uses to clarify this claim is not the words, but how somebody walks. That's why I say Christianity is not just about a decision. It's not just about a claim. It's not about being perfect. It is about the direction that you walk in. Christianity is not about the presence of sin in your life. Everybody has sin in their life. Christianity is about the posture towards that sin in your life. And so what he's saying here is, look, he's using the language of walking in darkness or walking in light to remind you and I that as long as we live here, uh, this is a journey. Nobody arrives. We can't be light as God is light, but we can be headed in that direction. Where are you walking? What's more important than words is the way that you live and walk when it comes to validating the claim. Uh, there was a group of us, we all went out to lunch um, uh, probably a few months ago. And as we sit down, I had a friend that recently became a vegan. Um, and so the catfish comes out and, you know, she picks up the catfish and starts to eat. And I said, well, you can't uh, eat that because you're a vegan. And she says... It's fine, and she ate it. I'm like, well, you're not a vegan because you ate that. And so I, 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 I just sat back in my head, and I said, if she's a vegan, like, why would she eat the catfish? And the conclusion that I came to was this. Um, her mistake was that uh, she thought she could be vegan and happy at the same time. <laughs> and... Yeah, I just try to help with No, you can't, right? The path towards veganism is the path away from the joy that comes with ribs and, 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 and meat and things like that. But really, I, I, I'm just like, wait, wait, wait. You have to choose one. You can't walk towards both any more than you can walk towards north and south at the same time. And listen to what John is saying. He's saying is you can't hold on to your sin and walk and pursue sin and claim that you're walking and pursuing Jesus. 
those things are north and south. You can't walk towards them both at the same time. Walking towards one and embracing one is running from the other one. I think the point that he's trying to make is this. The distinction that we want to draw out is this. Um, There are two ways to live. You can either pursue Jesus and get tripped up by sin, um, or you can pursue sin and get tripped up by Jesus. Let me explain the two. There's a way to live where you pursue Jesus. You, You love him. You want to serve him. You want to know him and you pursue him and you try as best as you can. But because you're a fallen person in a fractured world, there are going to be times where you slip and fall. And in moments of sheer stupidity, even intentional, high-handed sin against God, you fall and you slip and you sin, but you get back up and you run towards him and you pursue him and you're honest about your sin. Or you live a life pursuing sin, which one is not important, but you wake up and it's the first thing that comes to your mind and you don't do anything about it. It's what drives you and consumes all your free time and your free thoughts. And you don't do anything about it. You don't check it. When it gets exposed, you make excuses for it. When you're wronged, you respond in kind and blame it on what the other person has done. When you're hurt, you use your hurt and trauma to justify all types of sin. Listen, just because you have Jesus moments and sin moments doesn't mean that you're a Christian. It just means, or it may just mean, that you live in the most religiously free and evangelized country in the history of the world where you don't even have to be a Christian to feel guilty about the stuff that you do. Just because you feel guilty about things that you've done wrong, it may not mean that you're a Christian. It only means that you have a conscience. And a conscience is not just a Christian thing. Everybody watches Pinocchio and sees Jiminy Cricket. And it's not just the Christians that say, wait a minute, that's the Holy Spirit. Everybody says, no, that's a conscience because we all have one. The mark of a Christian is not feeling guilty about sin. The mark of a Christian is repenting of sin. I think what John wants us to know is this. We can't have both. So we use this term, walking in darkness towards walking in the light. Here's the best of what I can tell what it means to walk in darkness and walk in the light. And I'll I'll explain it like this. To walk in the darkness um, is to tell half-truths about whole truths. To walk in the darkness is to find yourself in a community of people and or Christians and nobody actually knows what you're struggling with. To walk in the darkness is to hide our sin because we're gripped 
by the shame that comes from confessing our sin. Here's why I say that. Because when John contrasts, look here in verse 6. If we say, right, we have fellowship with God, yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, you would expect him to say, we have fellowship with God. But he doesn't. He says, we have fellowship with one another. Remember, we live in the eyes of a God where there is no darkness. All things are light to him. God knows full well what goes on in your life. You can't hide from God. To walk in the light is not just a way that you live towards God. It's a horizontal reality, the way that you live amongst God's people. Your relationship with God, it is in fact a personal relationship. But the Bible never describes it as a private one. There is no such thing as an independent Christianity. Christianity was never meant to live in isolation. It, thri- it dies in isolation. This is why I think time and again, week in and week out, we're constantly talking about the importance of being a part of a church. Uh, I think we can say it so much that it's, it seems as if what we're trying to say is that the goal is that you are part of an organization where you come in and watch kids, and do sound, and click slides, and come to studies, and pray. And let me, hear, let me say this. Um, it is possible to be a good church member and to wind up in hell. That's not what we're trying to say. When we're advocating or encouraging people to be a part of a church, it's not so that your life can be centered around an organization. It's so that your life can be centered around the gospel. And so here's the beautiful thing about a church. Week in and week out, we're talking about this gospel. We're singing about this gospel. This message about this God who saves sinners through Jesus Christ freely. We don't have to pay anything. Christ did. And finding yourself as a part of a community, not just conveniently committing to a community, what you see is that the church is a place where week in and week out a community is gathering, thanking God for the salvation that he provided to us so that when you and I confess our sins and do the very thing that he's called us to do, it doesn't come as a shock to anybody because all of us came into the front door the same way. regardless of how horrendous the sin is, when it's confessed, nobody can say, who let that guy in, as if there's something that's wrong with them that we don't all have. So the church is uniquely designed to be a place where you and I, fallen and broken people, can be who we are, say what we are, what we lack, and cry out and plead for God's mercy. And do you know what that does when you have a group of people that come together and are willing to acknowledge their weakness? Friendship. This is where with one another. C.S. Lewis says this. Friendship is born at the moment somebody looks to somebody else and says, you too, 
I thought I was the only one. God uniquely creates a church to gather around the gospel, the message that God saves sinners through Jesus so that week in and week out we can be reminded, regardless of how hard our weeks are, regardless of how bruised our knees are, from falling to the same things that we said we would never do again, we can be reminded that grace, that we can withdraw from Jesus' account that can cause his mercy to go bankrupt. Try to do that on your own if you want to. And you'll find out that it's impossible. Look with me in verse 8. He goes on again and says this. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all un. Righteousness. The first test had to do with how you and I walk outwardly in the sight of people. This next test has to do with the assessment that you and I give of ourselves. So it's one thing to know we can't meet the standard that God has set out. Do you know what the human heart instinctively does? Tries to drop the standard. Tries to redefine what sin is. Tries to deny that what is done is actually sin. And John says, no, 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 listen. This direction that you and I make where we walk in the light, uh, Christianity is not, about de- is not about denying sin. It's about dealing with it. Two things about you making an assessment of the sin in your life. The very first one is this. Um, your assessment doesn't matter as much as you think that it does. 1 Corinthians 4.4, Paul says this, uh, my conscience is clear, but just uh, for I am not conscious of anything against myself, but I'm not justified by this. It is the Lord who judges. Last week, the Grammys were on, and we all had the folks that we really wanted to win, and when they didn't win, we were in outrage, and you have folks that are yelling at a TV. Um, and then the, the sane or composed or balanced person in the room looks at them and says, hey, I know you made a judgment on that, but there's an academy that judges. Your judgment doesn't matter. So I think what John's saying is this. Yo, yo, listen. Try to redefine or drop a standard or come up with as many gymnastics as you want to. One, your judgment on your own sin doesn't matter as much as you think that it does. And two, it's not just that it doesn't matter, it's not accurate. Proverbs 30.12 says, this, there's a way that seems right to a man, but it ends in death. YouTube makes a killing. Uh, off of people that have a wrong assessment of themselves. They have a wrong assessment of how well that they can sing. And they start to sing and the videos go viral. And they think that it's because people like it when it's actually because people like laughing at it. What John's saying here about the sin in our own life, y'all, listen, it's easy for us to redefine, to drop a standard, to think it's not that bad, it's not that wrong. But what a Christian 
doesn't do is try to redefine sin or reinterpret God's law. A Christian hears it, owns up to it. Yeah, and then verse 9, look, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We know that we don't have to present ourselves as anything that we're not. You and I have complete freedom to be completely who we are, not stay how we are, but to be completely who we are. And then agree with God about the state of our souls where things have gone, gone wrong. And plead for his grace to change us. And once again, this is done in community because this you know, self-deception thrives in isolation. And when I say isolation, um, I don't just mean you by yourself. You can be isolated from the truth of God's word if you're by yourself or if you're in a group where everybody else just thinks like. Once again, this is the beauty of, of God's church that we find ourselves in a place, a diverse community of folks where people don't think like us. So the sins that I or people like me would sweep under the rug. There are others that can say, no, John, God's word says this. John, I get that you're ambitious and you may want to do things, but God's word is very clear about the priority of your family. No, John, I get that you want to be compassionate and loving, but the Bible is very, very clear about people-pleasing and pandering. And it's at that time that you and I can experience the grace that comes from, this is true. Father, I agree with what you say about the state of my soul. Would you forgive me? And you and I get a chance to tap into the unlimited grace of Christ. Just a quick word here. Don't let the feeling of remorse keep you from repenting or turning, right? Sin does bring guilt and it does bring shame, but the only thing that gets rid of that guilt and shame is confession, being honest with God, and in cases, God's people, and hearing from God's word that he provides forgiveness and assurance. Now, this is why every week, it's not just to rehash that we're flawed and that we're in need of, of God's grace, but what Colin did at the front end of our time was to come up and to confess sin in such a way where even if you don't have the words to put to it, you can sit back and listen and say, me too, me too, I've done the same thing, me too. And then we end with the scriptures to remind us that there is no amount of sin in us that can bankrupt God's account of mercy and grace. Are you struggling with a dry season in your life where Jesus doesn't seem beautiful or lovely, where you struggle to read his word, you struggle to have a love and affection for him? 
it may be the case that that dry season is a direct result of you failing to make a routine of confessing your sin and being reminded of the fact that Jesus forgives. God forgives. One of the greatest ways, the easiest ways for you and I to endear our heart to God is to be honest about how bad things are and to be reminded that he knew all of that before he ever made the choice of you. When we minimize our sin, what we do is we minimize our Savior. And here's what minimizing our sin is. It's when you and I sin and find ourselves in a place where we feel like, all right, I do want to go to God, but I know I just did this, so I need time. Let me give him time to cool off. As if your distance from him somehow does something that the work of Christ couldn't. Or you're saying, well, I'm going to pay him back. I know that I did them wrong, so I've got to go and make things right. And I've really got to work hard. That it's us thinking that some work of our hand can do something that the blood of Jesus couldn't. It's not endearing our hearts to God. It's saying that Jesus' life was good. But what I really need to add on to this is my good work so that you'll really know that I mean it. Listen. Repenting of sin is not about your resolve to do better or sincerity. Our sin has showed that our resolve isn't worth as much as we think that it is. Our repeated sin shows that even the greatest sincerity evaporates like sweat on a summer sidewalk. We don't put our trust in those things. We put our trust in the finished work of Christ, what God himself has done. That's why you know, Christianity is not about perfection. It's not about you achieving some state where you don't sin anymore. It's not about a decision, a prayer that you prayed one time at youth camp. It is about a walk, a way of life that we are empowered to live where our posture towards sin changes. It's still there, but no longer do we run after it. We get up and run away. And at times we're enticed and go back, but we get up and we run away. Christianity is not about perfection. It is about direction. Look here at 1 John 2, verses 1 through 2. Here's what I love about John. He gets ready to close out. He says this, my little children, I am writing you these things, look, so that you may not sin. For anybody that would think that the free and full forgiveness that's found in Christ is a get-out-of-hell-free card or just some means where people can live how they want to and just confess their sins, and now they're absolved and free. What John's saying is this. No, no, no. I'm writing all of these things to you so that you change the direction that you walk, so that you don't sin. But then he goes on and says this, but... If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He himself is the atoning sacrifice or the propitiation, which means God's wrath has been fully done away with because of the payment that Christ paid. 
for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. John is writing these things to us to let us know that the best thing that you and I can do is to keep walking and keep pursuing Jesus. Um, when my wife and I were, um, uh, it had to have been four and a half years ago now, uh, we spent a few months in D.C. and we were driving back from D.C. Uh, and my wife was asleep. I, I was driving and I was going faster than I should have. So I get pulled over. She wakes up. She starts to nag or exhort me, right, not to speak. Um, the cop comes to the door, writes me a ticket. I go home and I say, all right, man, I'm going to pay this ticket. Um, so I call in to try to pay the speeding ticket. And they said, oh, um, in Virginia, we have this thing called super speeder. Um, and that's you, my friend, you are a super speeder. Um, what this means is that uh, you are going 24 miles over the speed limit. One, uh, if you had gone one more mile over, you likely would have been put in jail right there. Uh, you can't just pay this fine. Um, it's going to cost you up to $1,000 and up to a year in jail. And I'm, right? Yo, so I'm like, yo, I can't go to jail. Yo, yo, I look tough, but I ain't been in a fight since the sixth grade, right? I can't go to jail. And so what they said, well, you have to show up to court and plead your case. And I'm like, man, I can't drive the eight hours from my house back to court because I got a lead foot and I'm going to go too fast and y'all trying to get me again. That's not going to happen. So what they said is this, well, if you can't show up, you can get a lawyer or an advocate, somebody to stand in your place where you can't stand and to plead your case down. So I call a lawyer, um, and I talk to him, and he sits, and what he says to me is, yeah, John, I'm sorry, that the fine is whack, you, you shouldn't have to pay this, but here's what I'll do, I'll go to the court, I'll plead your case, you'll have to pay a smaller fine and do 24 hours in community service. So he went to the court, pled my case, I got a smaller fine, I did community service, and it was a standard that I could meet. Um, friends, I want you to hear this. Uh, that is not the gospel. Here is the gospel. Jesus, on our behalf, goes into God's courtroom. And he looks at us and says, actually, John, I'm on his side. I agree with God's standard. But Jesus doesn't plead our case down to something that you and I can do. Jesus says, I agree, the penalty should be death, but here's what I'm going to do. And Jesus does what I wish my lawyer would have. He says, he says, I'm going to pay for it. The very sin that you committed, that earned you, hell, Jesus says, I'm going to pay for it. And he died and he rose. And now when you and I look to him, it's not just that we, we don't sin because we want to stay out of hell. Is we look to him and we see the one who loved us. It was the very sin that I did that put him on the cross. So the motivation for not sinning is not just staying out of hell. It's that we're so attracted to this beautiful savior that you and I run towards him. And as we run towards him, our posture is changed towards sin. 
And when you and I slip and fall, and when we mess up, we stand up and we are reminded that our advocate paid a price. Where if the whole world at the same time compounded all of their sins together and gave Jesus the bill, he could pay it and it wouldn't put a dent in the bank account. This is the good news that I have for you. If you want to be a Christian, if you want to be right with God, and you've been agonizing and striving, trying to make things better, there's nothing but rest to be found. Acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge your flaws. Right here and right now. Put your trust in the Lord. If you're a Christian, And you found yourself gripped by even the most horrendous and hideous sin. I want you to know. Hideous sin can be forgiven. Hidden sin is sin that's never repented of. Will you be a repentant sinner? And enjoy the full and free grace that comes from our Lord and Savior who died for our sins. Or will you be an unrepentant sinner and try to pay for that debt unsuccessfully on your own? I want you to know it's a no-brainer. Our Lord and Savior invites you to come right where you are. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beauty of your word. We thank you that the gospel is simple enough for an infant to understand. We have a debt that we couldn't pay, and somebody offered to pay it for us. Would you remind us that that's good news, Father? Would that shape the way that we come to you, Father? Lord, we pray that that good news would shape the way that we treat other people, Father. Help us not to be surprised or put off when we're sinned against. Help us to offer that same free and full forgiveness for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.